0: So long as you make the throw yourself, everything is skill and easy winning. Only if you suddenly become the one catching the ball that the eternal playmate throws at you, at your center, with all her strength, in one of those arcs of great divine bridge builders, only then is being able to catch strength not yours, but of a world. Rilke Chapter 6 We all believe we have experienced joy. Every single one of us believes we have been happy at least once in our lives. Only this experience of joy has always been passive. We happen to enjoy ourselves. We cannot desire joy, just as we cannot oblige joy to present itself when we want it. All this separation between ourselves and joy depends on our being separate from ourselves, divided in two by the process of exploitation. We work all the year round to have the, quote, joy of holidays. When these come round, we feel, quote, obliged to, quote, enjoy the fact that we are on holiday. A form of torture like any other. The same goes for Sundays, a dreadful day. The rarefaction of the illusion of free time shows us the emptiness of the mercantile spectacle we're living in. The same empty gaze alights on the half-empty glass, the TV screen, the football match, the heroin dose, the cinema screen, traffic jams, neon lights, prefabricated homes that have completed the killing of the landscape. To seek joy in the depths of any of the various recitals of the capitalist spectacle would be pure madness, but that is exactly what capital wants. The experience of free time programmed by our exploiters is lethal. It makes you want to go to work. To apparent life, one ends up preferring certain death. No real joy can reach us from the rational me- mechanism of capitalist exploitation. Joy does not have fixed rules to catalog it. Even so, we must be able to desire joy. Otherwise, we would be lost. The search for joy is, therefore, an act of will, a firm refusal of the fixed conditions of capital and its values. The first of these refusals is that of work as value. The search for joy can only come about through the search for play. So play means something different to what we are used to considering it to be in the dimension of capital. Like serene idleness, the play that opposes itself to the responsibilities of life is an artificial distorted image of what it really is. At the present stage of the clash and the relative constrictions and the struggle against capital, play is not a pastime, but a weapon. By a strange twist of irony, the rules are reversed. If life is something serious, death is an illusion in the sense that so long we are alive, death does not exist. Now the reign of death, that is, the reign of capital, which denies our very existence as human beings and reduces us to things, seems very, very serious, methodical, and disciplined. But its possessive paroxysm, Its ethical rigorousness, its obsession with doing, all hide a great illusion. The total emptiness of the commodity spectacle, the uselessness of an indefinite accumulation, and the absurdity of exploitation. So the great seriousness of the world of work and productivity hides a total lack of seriousness. On the contrary, the refusal of this stupid world, the pursuit of joy, dreams, utopia, and its declared lack of seriousness, hides the most serious thing in life, the refusal of death. For in the physical confrontation with capital, play can take different forms, even on this side of the fence. Many things can be done playfully, yet most of the things we do, we do very seriously. Wearing the death mask we have borrowed from capital. Play is is characterized by a vital impulse that is always new, always in movement. By acting as though we are playing, we charge our action with this impulse. We free ourselves from death. Play makes us feel alive. It gives us the excitement of life. In the other model of acting, we do everything as though it were a duty, as though we had to do it. It is in the ever-new excitement of play, quite the opposite to the alienation and madness of capital, that we are able to identify joy. Here ties the possibility to break with the old world and identify identify with new aims and other values and needs. Even if joy cannot be considered man's aim, it is undoubtedly the privileged dimension that makes the clash with capital different when it is pursued deliberately. Life is so boring, there is nothing to do except spend all our wages on the latest skirt or shirt. Sisters and brothers, what are your real desires? Sit in the drugstore, look distant, empty, bored, drinking some tasteless coffee? Or perhaps, blow it up, or burn it down. The Angry Brigade Chapter 7 The great spectacle of capital has swallowed us all up to our necks. Actors and spectators, in turn, we alienate the rules, either staring open-mouthed at others or making others stare at us. We have alighted the glass couch, even though we know it is only a pumpkin. The fairy godmother's spell has beguiled our critical awareness. Now we must play the game, until midnight at least. Poverty and hunger are still the driving forces of the revolution, but capital is widening the spectacle. It wants new actors on stage. Our greatest spectacle in the world, in the world, will continue to surprise us. Always more complicated, better and better organized. New clowns are getting ready to mount the rostrum. Awesome, awesome, New species of wild beasts will be tamed. The supporters of quantity, lovers of arithmetic, will be first on and will be blinded by the limelight, dragging the masses of necessity and the ideologies of redemption along behind them. But one thing they will not be able to get rid of is their seriousness. The greatest danger they face will be a laugh. and the spectacle of capital, joy is deadly. Everything is gloomy and funeral because everything is serious and orderly. Everything is rational and programmed precisely because it is all false and illusory. Beyond the crises, beyond other problems of underdevelopment, beyond poverty and hunger, the last fight the capital will have to put up, the decisive one, is a fight against boredom. The revolutionary movement will also have to fight its battles, not just the traditional ones against capital, but new ones against itself. Boredom is attacking it from within, is causing it to deteriorate, making it asphyxiating, uninhabitable. Let us leave those who like the spectacle of capitalism alone, those who are quite happy to play their parts to the end. These people think that reforms really can change things, but this is more an ideological cover than anything else. They know only too well that changing bits is one of the rules of the system. It is useful to capital have things fixed a little at a time. Then there is the revolutionary movement, where there is no lack of those who attack the power of capital verbally. These people cause a great deal of confusion. They come out with grand statements, but no longer impress anyone least of all capital, which cunningly uses them for the most delicate part of its spectacle. When it needs a soloist, it puts one of these performers on stage. The result is pitiful. The truth is that the spectacular mechanism of commodities must be broken by entering the domain of capital, its coordinating centers, right to the very nucleus of production. Think what a marvelous explosion of joy, what a creative leap forward, what an extraordinarily aimless aim. Only it is difficult to enter the mechanics, mechanisms of capital joyfully with the symbols of life. Armed struggle is often a symbol of death, not because it gives death to the bosses and their servants, but because it wants to impose the structures of the dominion of death itself. Conceived differently, it really would be joy in action, capable of breaking the con- structural conditions imposed by the commodity spectacle, such as the military party, the conquest of power, the vanguard. This is the other enemy of the revolutionary movement. Incomprehension. Refusal to see the new conditions of the conflict. The insistence on imposing models of the past that have now become part of the commodity spectacle. Ignorance of the new revolutionary reality is leading to a lack of theoretical and strategic awareness of the revolutionary capacity of the movement itself. And it's not enough to say that there are enemies so close at hand as to make it indispensable to intervene right away without looking at questions of a theoretical nature. All this hides the incapacity to face the new reality of the movement and avoid the mistakes of the past that have serious consequences in the present. And this refusal nourishes all kinds of rationalist political illusions. Categories such as revenge, leaders, parties, the vanguard, quantitative growth, only mean something in the dimension of the society, and such a meaning favors the perpetuation of power. When you look at things from a revolutionary point of view, that is, the complete, definitive elimination of all power, these categories become meaningless. By moving into the nowhere of utopia, upsetting the worth ethic, turning it into the here and now of joy and realization, we find ourselves within a structure that is far from the historical forms of organization. This structure changes continually, so escapes crystallization. It is characterized by the self-organization of producers at the workplace and the self-organization of the struggle against work. Not the taking over of the means of production, but the refusal of production through organizational forms that are constantly changing. The same is happening with the unemployed and the casual laborers. Stimulated by boredom and alienation, structures are emerging on the basis of self-organization. The introduction of aims programmed and imposed by an outside organization would kill the movement and consign it to the commodity spectacle. Most of us are tied to this idea of revolutionary organization. Even anarchists who refuse authoritarian organization do not disdain it. On this basis, we all accept the idea that the contradictory reality of capital can be attacked with similar means. We do so because we are convinced that these means are legitimate, emerging as they do from the same field of struggle as capital. We refuse to admit that not everyone might see things the way we do. Our theory is identical to the practice and strategy of our organizations. The differences between the authoritarians and ourselves are many, but they all collapse before a common faith in the historical organization. Anarchy will be reached through the work of these organizations. Substantial differences only appear in methods of approach. But this faith indicates something very important, the claim of our whole rationalist culture to explain reality in progressive terms. This culture bases itself on the idea that history is irreversible, along with that of the analytical capacity of science. All this makes us see the present as the point where all the efforts of the past meet the culminating point of the struggle against the powers of darkness, capitalist exploitation. Consequently, we are convinced that we are more advanced than our predecessors, capable of elaborating and putting into practice theories and organizational strategies that are the sum of all the experiences of the past. All those who reject this interpretation automatically find themselves beyond reality, which is by definition history, progress, and science. Whoever refuses such a reality is anti-historical, anti-progressive, and anti-scientific, sentenced without appeal. Straightened by this ideological armor, we go out into the streets. Here we run into the reality of a struggle that is structured quite differently from stimuli that do not enter the framework of our analyses. One fine morning during a peaceful demonstration, the police start shooting. The structure reacts. Comrades shoot too. Policemen fall. Anathema. It was a peaceful demonstration. For it to have degenerated into individual guerrilla actions, there must have been a provocation. Nothing can go beyond the perfect framework or our ideological organization, as it is not just a part of reality, but is all reality. Anything beyond it is madness and provocation. Supermarkets are destroyed, shops, food, and arms depots are looted, luxury cars are burned. It is an attack on the commodity spectacle in its most conspicuous forms. The new structures are moving in that direction. They take form suddenly with only the minimum strategic orientation necessary. No frills. No long analytical premises. No complex supporting theories. They attack. Comrades identify with these structures. They reject the organizations that give power, equilibrium, waiting, death. Their action is a critique of the wait-and-see suicidal positions of these organizations. Anathema. There must have been a provocation. There is a break away from traditional political models, which becomes a critique of the movement itself. Irony becomes a weapon. Not closed within a writer's study, but en masse in the streets. Not only the boss's servants, but also revolutionary leaders from a far off and recent past find themselves in difficulty as a result. The mentality of the small-time boss and leading group is also put in crisis. Anathema The only legitimate critique is that that against the bosses, and it must comply with the rules laid down by the historical tradition of the class struggle. Anyone who strays from the seminary is a provocateur. People are tired of meetings, the classics, pointless marches, theoretical discussions that split hairs in four, endless distinctions, the monotony and poverty of certain political analyses. They prefer to make love, smoke, listen to music, go for walks, sleep, laugh, play, kill pigs, lame journalists, kill judges, blow up barracks, anathema. The struggle is only legitimate legitimate, when it is comprehensible to the leaders of the revolution. Otherwise, there being a risk that the situation might get beyond their control, there must have been a provocation. Hurry, comrades, shoot the policeman, the judge, the boss, now, before a new police prevent you. Hurry to say no before the new repression convinces you that saying no is useless, pointless, mad, and that you should accept the hostility of the mental asylum. Hurry to attack capital before a new ideology makes makes it scared to you, sacred to you. Hurry to refuse work before some new sophist tells you yet again that work makes you free. Hurry to play. Hurry to arm yourself. There will be no revolution until the Cossacks descend. Graderoy. Chapter 8 Play is also enigmatic and contradictor in the logic of capital, which uses it as part of the commodity spectacle. It acquires an ambiguity that it does not in itself possess... This ambiguity comes from the illusory structure of capitalist production. In this way, the game simply becomes a suspension of production and a parenthesis of peace in everyday life. So play comes to be programmed and used scientifically. When it is outside the dominion of capital... Play is harmoniously structured by its own creative impulse. It is not linked to this or that performance required by the forces of the world of production, but develops autonomously. It is only in this reality that play is cheerful, that it gives joy. It does not suspend the unhappiness of the laceration caused by exploitation, but realizes it to the full, making it become the participant in the reality of life. In this way, it opposes itself to the tricks put into act by the reality of death, even though play, even through play, to make the gloominess less gloomy. The destroyers of the death reality are struggling against the mythical reign of capitalist illusion, a reign which, although it aspires to eternity, rolls in the dust of the contingent. Joy emerges from the play of destructive action, from the recognition of the profound tragedy that this implies, and an awareness of the strength of enthusiasm that is capable of slaying the cobwebs of death. It is not a question of opposing horror with horror, tragedy with tragedy, death with death. It is a confrontation between joy and horror, joy and tragedy, joy and death. To kill a policeman is not necessary. To don the judge's robes hastily cleansed of the blood of previous sentences. Courts and sentences are always part of the spectacle of capital, even when it's the revolutionaries who act them out. When a policeman is killed, his responsibility is not weighed on the scales. The clash does not become a question of arithmetic. One is not programming a vision of the relationship between revolutionary movement and exploiters, one is responding at the immediate level to a need that has come to be structured within the revolutionary movement, a need that all the analyses and justifications of this world would never have succeeded in imposing on their own. This need is the attack on the enemy, the exploiters, and their servants. It matures slowly within the structures of the movement. Only when it comes out into the open does the movement pass from the defensive phase to attack. Analysis and moral justification are upstream at the source, not downstream at the feet of those who come out into the streets, poised to make them stumble. They exist in the centuries of systematic violence that capital is exercised over the exploited, but they do not necessarily come to light in a form that is complete and ready to use. That would be a further rationalization of intentions, our dream of imposing a model of reality that does not belong to it. Let's have these Cossacks come down. We do not support the role of reaction. That is not for us. We refuse to accept capital's ambiguous invi- invitation. Rather than shoot our comrades or each other, it is always better to shoot policemen. There are times in history when science exists in the of those consciousness of those who are struggling. At such times, there is no need for interpreters of truth. It emerges from things as they are. It is a reality of the struggle that produces theory. The birth of the commodity market marked the formation of capital, the passage from feudal forms of production to the capitalist one. With the entrance of production into its spectacular phase, the commodity form has extended to everything that exists, love, science, feelings, consciousness, etc. The spectacle has widened. The second phase does not, as the Marxists maintain, constitute a corruption of the first. It is a different phase altogether. Capital devours everything, even the revolution. If the latter does not break from the model of production, if it merely claims to impose alternative forms, capitalism will swallow it up within the commodity spectacle. Only the struggle cannot be swallowed up. Some of its forms crystallizing in precise organizational entities can end up being drawn into the spectacle, but when they break away from the deep significance that capital gives to production, this becomes extremely difficult. In the second phase, questions of arithmetic and revenge do not make sense. If they are mentioned, they take on a metaphorical significance. The Illusory Game of Capital the commu- the commodity spectacle must be substituted with the real game of the armed attack against it for the destruction of the unreal and the spectacle. Do it yourself. Brickhole Coeur Manual Chapter 9 It's easy. You can do it yourself, alone or with a few trusted comrades. Complicated means are not necessary. Not even great technical knowledge. Capital is vulnerable. All you need is to be decided. A load of talk has made us obtuse. It's not a question of fear. We aren't afraid. Just stupidly full of prefabricated ideas we can't break free from. Anyone who is determined to carry out his or her deed is not a courageous person. They are simply a person who has clarified their ideas, who has realized that it is pointless to make such an effort to play the part assigned to them by capital in the performance. Fully aware, they attack with cool determination, and in doing so, they realize themselves as human beings. They realize themselves in joy. The reign of death disappears before their eyes. Even if they create destruction and terror for the bosses, in their hearts, And in the hearts of the exploited, there is joy and calm. Revolutionary organizations have difficulty in understanding this. They impose a model that reproduces the reality of production. The quantitative destiny of the latter prevents them from having any qualitative move to the level of the aesthetic dimension of joy. These organizations also see armed attack in a purely quantitative light. Objectives are decided in terms of a frontal clash. In that way, capital is able to control any emergency. It can even allow itself the luxury of accepting the contradictions, point out spectacular objectives, exploit the negative effects on producers in order to widen the spectacle. Capital accepts the clash in the quantitative field because that is where it knows all the answers has a monopoly of the rules and produces the solutions itself. On the contrary, the joy of the revolutionary act is contagious. It spreads like a spot of oil. Play becomes meaningful when it acts on reality. But this meaning is not crystallized in a model that governs it from above. It breaks up into a thousand meanings, all productive and unstable. The internal connections of play work themselves out in the action of attack, but the overall sense survives. The meaning that play has for those who are excluded and want to appropriate themselves of it. Those who decide to play first and those who observe the the liberatory consequence of the game are essential to the game itself. The community of joy is structured in this way. It is a spontaneous way of coming into contact, fundamental for the realization of the most profound meaning of play. Play is a communitarian act. It rarely presents itself as, an, as one isolated fact. If it does, it often contains the negative elements of psychological repression. It is not a positive acceptance of play as a creative movement of struggle. In the communitarian sense of play... That prevents arbitrariness and choice of the significance given to the game itself in the absence of a communitarian relationship, the individual could impose their own rules and meanings that would be incomprehensible to anyone else. Simply making play becomes simply making play becomes a temporary suspension of the negative consequences of their individual problems: the problems of work, alienation, exploitation. In the communitarian agreement, play is enriched by a flux of reciprocal actions. Creativity is greater when it comes from reciprocally verified, liberated imaginations. Each new invention, each new possibility can be lived collectively without preconstituted models and have a vital influence even by simply being a creative moment, even if it encounters a thousand difficulties during realization. A traditional revolutionary organization ends up imposing its techniques. It tends unavoidably towards technocracy. The great importance attached to the mechanical aspect of action condemns it along this road. A revolutionary structure that seeks the moment of joy in action, aimed at destroying power, considers the tools used to bring about this destruction just that, means. Those who use these tools must not become slaves to them, just as those who do not know how to use them must not become slaves to those who do. The dictatorship of the tool is the worst kind of dictatorship. Revolutionaries' most important weapons are their determination, their conscience, their decision to act, and their individuality. Arms themselves are merely tools, and as such should continually be submitted to critical evaluation. It is necessary to develop a critique of arms. Too often we have seen the sanctification of the submachine gun and military efficiency. Armed struggle does not concern weapons alone, these on their own cannot represent the revolutionary dimension. It's dangerous to reduce complex reality to one single thing. In fact, play involves this risk. It could make the living experience become no more than a toy, turning it into something magical and absolute. It is not by chance that the machine gun appears in the symbolism of so many revolutionary combatant organizations. We must go beyond this in order to understand joy as the profound significance of the revolutionary struggle, escaping the illusions and traps of part of the commodity spectacle through mythical and mythicized objects. Capital makes its final effort when faced with armed struggle. It engages itself on its last frontier. It needs the support of public opinion in order to act in a field where it is not too sure of itself. So it unleashes the psychological war using the most refined weapons of modern propaganda. Basically, the way capital is physically organized at the present time makes it vulnerable to any revolutionary structure capable of deciding its own timing and means of attack. It is quite aware of this weakness, and it takes measures to compensate for it. The police are not enough, not even the army. It requires constant vigilance by the people themselves, even the most humble part of the proletariat. So to do this, it must divide the class front. It must spread the myth of the danger of armed organizations among the poor, along with that of the sanctity of the state, morality, the law, and so on, and so on. It indirectly pushes these organizations and their militants into assuming precise roles. Once in this role, play no longer has any meaning. Everything becomes serious, so illusory. It enters the dominion of the spectacular and becomes a commodity. Joy becomes mass. The individual becomes anonymous, lives out their role, no longer able to distinguish between appearance and reality. In order to break out of the magic circle of the theatricals of commodities, we must refuse all roles, including that of the professional revolutionary. Armed struggle must not let itself become something professional, precisely that division of tasks that the external aspect of capitalist production wants to impose upon it. Do it yourself. Don't break up the global aspect of play by reducing it to roles. Defend your right to enjoy life. Obstruct capital's death project. The latter can only enter the world of creativity and play by transforming who is playing into a player. The living creator into a dead person who cheats themselves into believing they are alive. There would be no sense in talking about play any longer if the world of play were to become centralized. We must foresee this possibility of capital taking up the revolutionary proposal again when we put forward our argument of armed joy. And one way this could come about is through the management of the world of play from the outside, by establishing the rules of the players and the mythology of the toy. In breaking the bonds of centralism, the military party, one obtains the result of confusing capitalist ideas, tuned as they are into the code of the spectacular productivity of the quantitative market. Action, coordinated by joy, is an enigma to capital. It is nothing, something with no precise aim, devoid of reality. And this is so because the essence, the aims and reality of capital are illusory, while the essence, aims and reality of revolution are concrete. The code for the need for communism takes the place of the code of the need to produce. In the light of this need in the community of play, the decisions of the individual become meaningful. The unreal, illusory character of the death models of the past is discovered. The destruction of the bosses means the destruction of commodities, and the destruction of commodities means the destruction of the bosses. The Owl Takes Flight. Athenian Proverb. Chapter 10. The Owl Takes Flight. May actions that start off badly come to a good end. May the revolution put off by revolution, revolutionaries for so long be realized in spite of the lather's resisted, residual desire for social peace. Capital will give the last words to the White Coats. Prisons will not last for long. Fortresses of a past that survives only in the fantasies of some exalted old reactionary. They will disappear along with the ideology based on social orthopedics. Social orthopedics. There will no longer be convicts. The criminalization capital creates will be rationalized. It will be processed through asylums. When the whole of reality is spectacular... To refuse a spectacle means to be outside reality. Anyone who refuses the code of commodities is mad. Refusal to bow down before the commodity god will result in one being committed to a mental asylum. There the treatment will be radical. No more inquisitorial style torture or blood on the walls. Such things upset public opinion. They cause the self-righteous to intervene, give rise to justification in making amends, and disturb the harmony of the spectacle. The total annihilation of the personality, considered to be the only radical cure for sick minds, does not upset anyone. So long as the man in the street feels he is surrounded by the imperturbable atmosphere of the capitalist spectacle, he will feel safe from the asylum doors ever shutting on him. This world of madness will seem to him to be elsewhere, even though there is always an asylum available next to every factory, opposite every school, behind every patch of land, in the middle of every housing estate. In our critical obtuseness, we must take care not to pave the way to the civil servants in white coats. Capital is programming a code of interpretation to be circulated at mass level. On the basis of this code, public opinion will get used to seeing those who attack the bosses' order of things, that is to say, revolutionaries, as practically mad. Hence the need to have them put away in mental asylums. Prisons are also rationalizing along the German model. First they will transform themselves into special prisons for revolutionaries, then into model prisons, then into real loggers for brain manipulation, and finally, mental asylums. Capital's behavior is not dictated by the need to defend itself from the struggles of the exploited alone. It is dictated by the logic of the code of commodity production. For capital, the asylum is a place where the the globality of a spectacular functioning is interrupted. Prison desperately flies to to do this, but does not succeed, blocked as it is by its basic ideology of social orthopedics. The place of the asylum, on the contrary, does not have a beginning or an end. It has no history. It does not have the mutability of the spectacle. This is the place of silence. The other place of silence, the graveyard, has the faculty to speak aloud. Dead men talk, dead men talk, and our dead talk loudly. And they can be heavy, very heavy that is why capital will try to have fewer and fewer of them, and the number of guests in asylums will increase correspondingly. The homeland of socialism has much to impart in this field. The asylum is a perfect therapeutic rationalization of free time, the suspension of work without trauma to the commodity structure, lack of productivity without denial of it. The madman does not have to work, And in not doing so, he confirms that work is wisdom, the opposite of madness. When we say the time is not right for an armed attack on the state, we are pushing open the doors of the mental asylum for the comrades who are carrying out such attacks. When we say it is not the time for revolution, we are tightening the cords of the straitjacket. When we say these actions are objectively a provocation, we don the white coats of the torturers. When the number of occupants was inconsiderable, great shot was effective. A dozen dead could be tolerated. 30,000, 100,000, 200,000 would mark a turning point in history, a revolutionary point of reference of such blinding luminosity as to disrupt the peaceful harmony of the commodity spectacle. Besides, capital is more cunning. Drugs have a neutrality that bullets do not possess. They have the alibi of being therapeutic. May capital's statute of, statue of madness be thrown in its face. Society is one immense mental asylum. May the terms of the counterpositions be overturned. The neutralization of the individual is a constant practice. In capital's we find totality. The flattening of opinions is a therapeutic process, a death machine. Production cannot take place without this flattening in the spectacular form of capitalism. And if the refusal of all that, the choice of joy in the face of death, is a sign of madness, it is time everyone began to understand the trap that lurks beneath it all. The whole apparatus of the Western cultural tradition is a death machine, the negation of reality, a reign of the fictitious that has accumulated every kind of infamy and injustice, exploitation and genocide. If the refusal of this logic is condemned as madness, then we must distinguish between madness and madness. Joy is arming itself, its attack is overcoming the commodity hallucination. Machinery, vengeance, the leader, the party's quantity. Its struggle is breaking down the logic of profit, the architecture of the market, the programming of life, the last document in the last archive. Its violent explosion is overturning the order of dependent, the nomenclature of positive and negative, the code of the commodity's illusion. But all this must be able to communicate itself. The passage from the world of joy to the world of death is not easy. The codes are out of phase and end up wiping each other out. What is considered illusion in the world of joy is reality in the world of death and vice versa. Physical death, so much a preoccupation in the death world, is less mortifying than what is peddled as life. Hence, Capitals' capacity to mystify messages of joy. Even revolutionaries of the quantitative logic are incapable of understanding experiences of joy in depth. Sometimes they hesitantly make insignificant approaches. and other times they let themselves go with condemnation that is not very different to that of capital. In the commodity spectacle, it is goods that count. The active element of this accumulated mass is work. Nothing can be positive and negative at the same time within the framework of production. It is possible to assert non-work. Not the negation of work, but its temporary suspension. In the same way, it is possible to assert the non-commodity, the personalized object, but only in the context of free time. something that is produced as a hobby in the time lapse is conceded by the productive cycle. In this sense, it is clear that these concepts, non-worked and the non-commodity, are functional to the general model of production. Only by clarifying the meaning of joy and the corresponding meaning of death as components of two opposing worlds struggling against each other is it possible to communicate elements of the actions of joy without eluding ...eluding ourselves, that we can communicate all of them. Anyone who begins to experience joy, even in a perspective not directly linked to the attack on capital... ...is more willing to grasp the significance of the attack. At least more than those who remain tied to an outdated vision of the clash based on the illusion of quantity. So the owl could still take wing and fly... Forward, everyone, and with arms and heart, word and pen, dagger and gun, irony and curse, theft, poisoning and arson, let's make war on society. Jacques Chapter 11 Let's be done with waiting, doubts, dreams of social peace, little compromises and (laughs) naivety. Naivety. All metaphorical rubbish supplied to us in the shops of capitalism. Let's put aside the great analyses that explain everything down to the most minute detail. Huge columns filled with common sense and fear. Let's put aside democratic and bourgeois illusions of discussion and dialogue, debate and assembly, and the enlightened capabilities of the mafiosi bosses. Let's put aside the wisdom that the bourgeois work ethic has dug into our hearts. Let's put aside the centuries of Christianity that have educated us to sacrifice and obedience. Let's put aside priests, bosses, revolutionary leaders, less revolutionary ones, and those who aren't revolutionary at all. Let's put aside numbers, illusions of quantity, and the laws of the market. Let us sit for a moment on the ruins of the history of the persecuted and reflect the world does not belong to us if it has a master who is stupid enough to want it the way it is let him have it let him count the ruins in the place of buildings the graveyards in the place of cities the mud in the place of rivers and the putrid sludge in the place of seas the greatest conjuring spectacle in the world no longer enchants us we are certain that communities of joy will emerge from our struggle here and now, and for the first time, life will triumph over death. Arms Joy.